Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Again, this idea of, of it meeting a rut or this idea of even aspiring after it, sometimes it strikes me as, as odd because what is a routine? It, it By definition, you know, it's a pattern, it's stagnant, it's the same. And we want our days to look like that, which is then almost a, a groundhog day. If we stuck to the perfect routine, we'd have the same day over and over and over again. And isn't it that we want our lives to have variance and and interest and depth and, you know, learnings? And that comes from things having, you know, that variance. And so the rut is very much, I think it's, it, it might be a common experience to land in one without realizing because here we are pursuing optimized routines and optimized productivity and then getting, say we got there, then we just have the same day over and over again and not realize that we're actually stuck in something. And so that's where they kind of meet each other simply through the definition of the two words, really, because a rut is, you know, being stuck in a groove. And so you might have a routine for a while that is a groove, but then you get stuck in that very groove. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Madeline, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's such a treat to be joining you. It is my pleasure to have you here. Uh, I just found out from talking to you that you have been a longtime listener. You have an amazing book out called I Didn't Do the Thing Today, which is probably one of the most contrarian views on productivity I've come across in all the time I've been doing this in a world that is absolutely obsessed with productivity. <laughs> but before we get into all that, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and career? Um, well, I, I have always appreciated this question that you've asked because I think it's such a beautiful way to explore how it's not necessarily what you do, but the way that you do it. And I think that this particular approach that my parents have had to their careers has influenced me in a way that I didn't really appreciate until recent years. And in particular, my mum, uh, she grew up in public housing and she was the first in her family to go to university and she studied primary education there and then went on to become a kindergarten teacher. And from there, she then went and became a teacher at a community college to teach uh, kindergarten teaching and slowly worked her way up different leadership positions. And in order to do that, she actually had to move around a lot. So she'd have to follow the opportunities to different regional towns in Australia and eventually Melbourne, and then went on to become a CEO at a particular community college. And she would commute while we the family lived in Melbourne. And so she held these different positions over time and has even um, held positions in the Pacific. So that's an even longer commute. And I think what that really helped that trajectory from kindergarten teacher to CEO really showed me that there are possibilities and it's important to live a life of possibility and to go after opportunities. And I think many things enabled that in, in terms of being able to pursue particular possibilities. But the uh, bedrock, I guess, was my dad's willingness to support my mom's career um, 
and to follow her to to these different towns um, without question and for her to, to pursue this career. And I think what, I, I suppose, turning to my dad, what made that possible is that he worked as an electrician, um, so a tradie, and it meant that his career was portable. And I can now see as someone who has created a life where I can work as a writer, a freelancer, and and really make the most of that, the free part of freelancing in terms of working from different cities and um, sort of settling in, in different countries um, for sort of months at a time and, and having that portable life, I think was a huge influence. And so while my mom has definitely inspired me in terms of being a primary earner in the family and show me what's possible in terms of aspirations and and opportunities, I think that with my dad, what I've come to appreciate even more recently is that as a tradie, um, but also maybe, you know, he's, he's able to sort of, um, be a master craftsperson in, in many ways and cr- can create anything. Um, there's very much the possibility in that too, in a very tangible way, creating something from nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sort of, I think we can overlook that type of creativity. Often when we speak about creativity, it might be about art or design or film or music, but there's a real tangible creativity that trades people have. And there's so much to learn from people who are solving problems every day with ordinary materials, um, with their own hands. And that's very creative as well. So I think the combination of my parents has, has really shown the, the beauty of flexibility and of, of how to be sort of creative and, and pursue different possibilities. Yeah. Well, I, I assume when you say tradie, that's the Australian term for like a blue collar worker. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, is that would that yeah, be correct? So, so like an what we would call blue collar so. labor? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so you yeah, know, what, what yeah. I wonder is when you have a dad who's an electrician and a mom who is an educator, what was the narrative about education uh, in your household? And also in the Australian culture in general, what is the narrative about education? Because I know that you guys, for the most part, like everybody does a gap year before they start university. Um, Whereas here, you're just put on this conveyor belt from the time you're 18 years old without ever stopping to question, you know, why you're doing what you're doing, whether it's actually going to be a fit for you and whether it's going to lead to the satisfaction you think it will. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think the first part of that question in terms of having a parents, one's an electrician, one's an educator, I think what's been instilled is this, this idea of lifelong learning. Um, I think that, that that's sort of the thread um, and that we can learn from so many different things in our lives. Um, mm-hmm. And especially with, coll- uh, you know, a community college, it's really seeing that it's it's not necessarily being on a conveyor belt of academia or prestige. It's about pursuing whatever it is that you want to learn. And there's, there's accessible pathways to that. Learning doesn't have to cost anything. Learning can be learning from other people. Learning can be an apprenticeship. Um, learning can be from, you know, trying, um, and creating and failing and, and trying again. So I think that's something that comes from, from both. Um, and then in terms of, um, it's, it's difficult to speak, um, you know, to, I guess, a, a whole um, Australian view. But it, it's interesting what you note about the gap year. And I think that certainly not everyone takes a gap year. And, I, um, you know, people go on to, to pursue many different pathways. But maybe I, I've thought about it myself. And, and perhaps it's because we are, you know, an island in the middle of the ocean that's far away. Um, perhaps there is more of an impetus to, um, if, if we travel, I know certainly for myself, I, I don't want to sort of, um, just in terms of, consciously being aware of, okay, well, if we're traveling so far, then, um, you know, make the most of it in terms of really setting aside some time rather than rushing, you know, through, through places and, and, you know, having, if we're going that and taking that 24 hour flight, um, you know, even recovering from the jet lag might be worth settling somewhere for a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny because I, I have noticed that probably the people that I have met most when I have traveled to all the different countries I've traveled to are Australians. Like every youth hostel I've stayed in has had an abundance of Australians. And I remember I was at an, a youth hostel in Amsterdam. These two Australian guys, I think they were construction workers, like nine o'clock in the morning, like, all right, let's go smoke a joint and drink a beer. And I was like, it's nine o'clock in the morning. They're like, we're on holiday, man. I'm like, OK, this is how the Australians take vacations. Good to know. 
Well, certainly not all. <laughs> I haven't had the nine o'clock beer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good to know. Um, keep in mind that was, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I, I, I think I wouldn't find that to right, be the yeah, case yeah. now, but, uh, <laughs> In Australia, when it comes to education, do you have sort of this structure of like elite universities and, you know, sort of top-notch schools, kind of like we do here in the United States where you have the Ivy League? Is there anything that's the equivalent of that in Australia? And then, you know, how does that shape people's sort of, you know, career paths and, you know, motivation and desires when they're younger? Well, I I suppose we we don't really have a Ivy League equivalent. And perhaps because um, I suppose the student loan system operates quite differently um, in in mm-hmm. terms of it, it's um, there's there seems to be you know uh, there's not the same um, pressure of it, it's it's through the government the the loan, um, and so there you can pay that back through mm-hmm. your tax over years, decades, um, and so on, and so perhaps there's not the same. Um, well, I suppose debt is, is the way that it is a debt, but it's um, uh, perhaps there's a little bit more flexibility or freedom uh, in terms of pursuits. And there's, as again, not someone who's embedded in the world of academia. I'm sure that there's there's always a level of prestige that, you know, when you're in a certain world, you're more aware of, of, of the hierarchy of things. And so, um, again, it's not something I can really speak to directly, but I think that... Um, even seeing, you know, there's not really, when I say community college that my mum, um, taught at and then eventually was in leadership roles, there's not really an equivalent, I don't think. Um, it's, so it's, 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 um, skills that, um, adults can develop. Um, and so it's not necessarily something that you go to, you might go to it, um, even during high school. Instead of finishing high school, you might mm-hmm. go to what's called a TAFE or community college. Um, or you might, um, be an adult learner um, and go and sort of reskill in something. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to reflect on because I think that I've always seen that there's a wealth of opportunities and it's it's really about, I don't know whether it's my direct upbringing or whether it's a specific Australian thing, um, but that there is, it's not necessarily a pressure to sort of get on a certain track. It's about really discovering what it is that you wish to do. Um, and then there can be different pathways there. But as, again, yeah. that could be um, a certain luxury of mine in terms of um, being influenced by someone who's pursued different possibilities for themselves. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, you know, like as I'm listening to you, I, I just I can't but help help but think that there's no way an American person could have written this book. That only an Australian would have written uh-huh. a book with this very contrarian view on productivity. So, um, with that in mind, uh, I curious, what is the narrative about work culture in Australia? Because I think that the you know the sense I get is a lot of countries um, other than the United States, people live, you know, work to live. Whereas in the United States, we basically live to work. Like work dominates our lives here in the United States. It's such a big part of our lives that from the time you're in college, you're starting to think about, you know, what you're going to do for work. And, you know, we ask kids when they barely have been on the planet for very long, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's like, wait, this kid hardly knows themselves. And you're asking them, you know, what they want to do for the rest of their lives when they've only lived a fraction of it. Mm, that's really interesting because I see that and I, I can see that that would, there would certainly be people, um, everywhere. I think that that, that is becoming quite a contagious thought, not only contagious, but in, in some parts of the world, very necessary, you know, to, to work, to survive. Um, and so it, it's kind of so complex to unpack. And I suppose I can only really speak to this idea that I, I, I chose, similar to you, to, to speak directly to creative people, um, not necessarily to, to find out, you know, um, a, a, a perfect or um, comprehensive portrait of an Australian approach to work, but rather an, a creative approach to work. And so I did interview people from mm-hmm. Australia and the US. And I suppose it's when you're looking at, at this particular subset of people who are, uh, are choosing to to live a, a life that is different, it's it's difficult for me to speak to, um, I guess, a standard attitude with any authority. So I'm not going to pretend to. Um, so I think yeah. it's more that I was curious, something inside of me wanted to know that it's possible to live a different sort of life. And so I, I, I sought mm-hmm. out people I thought who were doing that. Um, and that became the inspiration. Um, and to see that it is possible to kind of step outside. Um, yeah, I guess the confines of, of what a productive day or the hamster wheel, I suppose. Um, and it, that's yeah. complex and difficult. Mm. Yeah. Did you notice any differences in, you know, the way that people viewed productivity when you talk to people in different cultures? Like what was the sort of narrative that you know people had about productivity? Because, you know, like I, I think I read this book and part of it made me cringe because I'm like, wow, I'm basically everything you know that she's saying is wrong. And at the same time, I find myself agreeing with you and nodding. And I was like, yep, that's wrong with me, too. I do this, too. I'm obsessed with the productivity. But uh, and, and we'll get into the book here in just a second. But like I that that's something that I was really curious about. I was like, you're talking to people from different cultures, like how particularly creative people. How did it differ? Mm. Well, I, I feel like I have to caveat in, and say that this book is built from a labor of love where I was speaking to people um, who I had direct access to. So it's, again, by no means comprehensive, nor is it um, rigorous in its study anthropologically. Um, so there's no way that I could comment on on something so vast and complex as culture. Um, again, I was just uh, speaking to who I could 
when I could. Um, it was a labor of love. So it was done when I had the time and curiosity picked up and put down. And it really stemmed from all these stumbles that I felt within myself. So anything that you might come across in the book as, you know, being wrong with you, which I, I want to put in, you know, <laughs> air quotations. Um, it's because I was having that, that very stumble. You know, I was, um, coming up against my own perfectionism as well, or my own obsession with productivity, um, or my own sort of, you know, attachment to what I do being, you know, the definition of who I am. Um, and so I think that mm -hmm. these are all, um, you know, I was speaking, taking these, these really tricky, I guess, um, you know, some might sort of frame it as internalized capitalism, um, taking that to people who I thought might have the answers. Um, as a way to kind of solve it within myself. And so, um, again, I think, I think just to underline that a lot of these things were very personal, I suppose, um, questions that I had and then put to individuals. And so, you know, even though we can find the universal in individuals, by no means can I kind of, yeah, sum up neatly, unfortunately, Srini, any kind of, um, broader commentary. It was more just looking for answers. <laughs> Um, in, in little corners. And so the people I spoke to in different countries, um, which again, primarily Australia and the US, it was very much to look for what kind of gems that person had very much as you do so beautifully as well. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate you caveating uh, everything with that because I, I think there's so many people who have a tendency to position themselves as authorities and experts with nothing to back it up. But the fact that you're openly saying that, I think just means a lot to me. Um, you open the book by saying that when we conflate productivity with worthiness, what we do is never enough. We can always do more and there's always more to do. And I, I like, I just think about how I'm sitting at the end of the day making a to-do list thinking, yeah, there is always more to do. So is there any way to decouple this idea of conflating productivity with worthiness? Like how do we, you know, not tie our worthiness to our productivity, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's the big wrestle, I think, because it, it is this, hamster wheel. Um, and you know, in, in many ways there's, there's nothing wrong with being productive either. You know, there's those days where we do tick off everything on our to-do list. They kind of have this amazing shimmer to them and, and it feels good. And I think in part, we're sort of chasing that feeling, um, that high that, that being productive and that meaning sometimes that being productive can bring, like we want to do the things that are important to us. And so it's not necessarily productivity, um, that's the problem. It's just that it's the wrong goal. Um, and in terms of, you know, we, we really narrow how we view productivity. We see it as, you know, this consistent linear, you know, progress, um, this sort of this upward trajectory that has to come with being productive, but actually, um, productivity doesn't necessarily have to look like that. Um, and instead of pursuing that very narrow version, um, and attaching our sense of self-worth to that version, um, which is essentially more, 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 more. So there's never enough. Um, we can reframe it and, and see, I, as I speak about sort of taking a more creative lens to our days and to our work and to our lives and to our connection, because a more creative lens will allow us to, to acknowledge that there's an ebb and a flow to things. I think we, we know intuitively maybe that there's, you know, an ebb and flow to our energy and our attention and even the productive days, like that beautiful shimmering productive day that we might have is often followed by a lower energy day where we do need to kind of recoup. Um, and so there tends to be a, a, a kind of ebb and flow to it. And so a creative approach means it can really broaden things and we can broaden it so that, you know, we don't have to feel deflated on the days that don't go to plan or there's a distraction or we don't get enough done because we can see that it's part of a different kind of cycle. And we can see that those days have value too. And it might be that, you know, that day was more about thinking or it was more about connecting than necessarily the doing part of it. Um, and so I think it's really important to see it as part of a cycle rather than just fixating on one part of it. Um, because mm -hmm. yeah, as humans, we're kind of, we're complex and we're inconsistent. And I think that our work patterns reflect that, but we forget and we're trying to sort of squeeze ourselves into these these boxes that that you know are really hard <laughs> to to maintain and to achieve essentially yeah well you know you talk about routines and you say the ideal routine we draft for ourselves in which productivity is optimized distractions are minimized and our output is at a maximum and then the messy everyday reality of our days as they unfold 
Rarely is the aspirational ideal achieved. On most days, we're just adjusting, tumbling, and rebuilding. And then you actually go on to say the aspirational routine to which we're pinning our hopes of being better is more like a mirage. Although we strive for it, we rarely reach what it promises. And the reason for this is the variance inherent in our days and our energy and our interest in our interactions and our everyday chaos. A perfectly ordered life will always remain outside the imperfect reality of the daily lives. And you actually say that (laughs) creating the ideal routine rather ironically can be the very thing that lands us into a rut. And, you know, as uh, I mentioned to you before we hit record today, like my routine got thrown off simply because we were out of food at the house. And I was like, damn it, everybody ate everything. And now my day is shot to shit. I needed to be here an hour earlier so I could read before I talked to you. And I didn't get to do that yet. Um, <laughs> but I think the the real thing that struck me when I, I, I read your book was that idea of a routine becoming a rut. Um, and the reason that stood out to me so much was because during COVID, I got into a standard routine every day. It was the same thing. I would sit down in my basement at my house in Boulder and I would just read and I would write for hours on end. And I remember when my second roommate was moving out to uh, go to Chile for the summer, he said, Trini, he was like, you need to move out. He said, because I know you well enough to know that if you don't move out of here, you're going to just sit in this basement reading and writing for the rest of the summer. And I ended up actually going down to South America with him. But I didn't even recognize I was mm-hmm. in a rut until after I pulled the plug on it. But I realized that the routine had become a mm. rut. So talk to me about how, one, we can make sure our routines don't become ruts, and two, how we don't lose our shit when things don't go according to plan, even though, you know, because a lot of creatives, I think, are really weird like this. They're creatures of habit to a fault, and when things don't go as planned, it drives them insane. Yeah. Which is interesting because isn't that like where a lot of epiphanies and ideas come from is the unexpected surprise and the things that don't go to plan. It's kind of the definition of creativity is that's that, that landing on something new, um, that new combination. And so it's funny that we kind of resist the very thing that is what we're searching for. <laughs> I guess that's, mm-hmm. yeah. And that relates back to this idea of a routine meeting a rut is that, you know, Again, just like productivity, there's nothing inherently wrong with being productive. There's nothing inherently wrong with a routine. Um, a routine can be really grounding. Um, it can be something that we can really rely on, especially, you know, during times of a certain uncertainty. Um, it can be the thing that, that, um, you know, can be paramount to our mental health. Um, but I think what can be tricky is the aspirational side of it. So it's not so much the routine, but this idea that we should have a, a particular type of routine. Um, and that we should stick to it every day perfectly. So it's, it's, it's more the, um, the side effects of perfectionism and comparison that actually can make a routine. Um, I guess something that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost this, um, you know, hamster wheel again of, of chasing something that you, or a mirage, as I say, because you don't ever quite arrive there. And so by very nature of never arriving there, you're postponing your life. You know, a lot of people sort of, as soon as I get a routine, I will dot, dot, dot. Um, and just accepting that maybe you won't arrive at the perfect routine or you'll never be quite perfectly consistent. You can still actually mm-hmm. make the most of every day, though. That doesn't have to, to be there. So that, that's, I guess, my like warning about routine or aspirational ones. But in terms of, a, again, this idea of, of it meeting a rut or this idea of even aspiring after it, sometimes it strikes me as as odd because, you know, what is a routine? It, it, by definition, you know, it's a pattern, it's stagnant, it's the same. And we want our days to look like that, which is then almost a, a groundhog day. If, if our, if we stuck to the perfect routine, we'd have the same day over and over and over again. And isn't it that we want our lives to have variance and, and interest and depth and, you know, learnings? And that comes from things having you know, that variance. And so the rut is very much, I think it's, it, it might be a common experience to land in one without realizing because here we are pursuing optimized routines and optimized productivity. And then getting, say we got there, then we just have the same day over and over again and not realize that we're actually stuck in something. And so that's where they kind of meet each other. They meet each other simply through the definition of the two words, really, because a rut is, you know, being stuck. Um, in a, in a wedge and a, in a groove. And so you might have a routine for a while that is a groove, but then you get stuck in that very groove. Um, 
But interestingly, I think that with a rut, whether it's because we landed there um, without even realizing or whether sometimes we get stuck in a rut because of something external happening to us, you know, heartbreak or loss or, um, you know, a, a, a major change, um, you can get stuck there for a while. And it can be difficult because there's the culture might say, you know, push, push yourself out of the rut. You know, we idolize routines, yet we sort of demonize being stuck in a rut. You know, it's like being told to get over it. Um, but often if we force that, we'll just become further wedged. And so it's really about kind of slowly retooling yourself to be able to get out of that rut. Um, and interestingly, where this all comes full circle is that sometimes it's then about turning back to your day and finding small good things that you can turn to during that time of a rut, be it exercise or be it, you know, um, having, you know, meditation or whether it, you know, some kind of way to, that, that makes you feel like you're, you're sort of bringing either joy or health or vitality back. And those very things can start to, you know, build up and look like a routine again. And so then it becomes this, this interesting cycle, I think. Mm. Um, but again, I think the most important part of it, like all of this, is to see that each part has its own value, whether it's you're in that routine, whether you're in that rut. And really the rut has so much value because it's showing you that something's not working anymore. It's showing you that you crave a change um, and that maybe it's alerting you to the fact that you are becoming too complacent and it's time for something new. And you might not know yet what that is. And so it feels like you're stuck, but maybe be patient with that rather than trying to cover over it. Um, I think that's the hardest part is the patience. Well, you know, when you mentioned perfectionism, I couldn't help but thinking about the role that uh, social media plays in all of this. Uh, And I, you know, I didn't even watch it, but I remember Ryan Holiday puts up a video on Instagram just a few days ago where it's like, this is the morning routine. (laughs) And I, I couldn't help but think, okay, everybody's probably like, okay, I need to be like that. Or my friend Benjamin Hardy, I'm sure you've come across this article, The Eight Things That Everybody Should Do Before 8 a.m. And I remember talking to him. I was like, Ben, if somebody didn't get any sleep, there's nothing on your list they should do. They should get some damn sleep. Uh, you know, and I, I think that <laughs> I, I wonder, like in your opinion, like, what role does the, the media we consume and, and, you know, social media play in our aspirational uh, routines that we create in our heads? Mm, I really loved you. That's a great counterpoint to have <laughs> um, in, the, in terms of that eight things before 8 a.m. I think that um, it, it really comes down to, you know, you know, I think that it's so much easier to look for some kind of secret or recipe um, for how to live our lives and therefore how to go about our day. And I certainly, you know, I spent half a decade looking for that recipe myself, thinking that if I could interview people that, um, you know, were inspiring and successful and had it all together on the outside, then I could just copy paste and have the perfect day as well. Um, but I think if, if there's been one sort of major lesson, it's that you can't create the same recipe when you've got different ingredients and we just have different ingredients. Like our mornings will look different depending on our various responsibilities, um, our various energy, our, you know, our health, our, our state of mind, our, our commitments, our, you know, worries. Like there's just so many variances as individuals. And then there's the variances of the day, you know, what might happen happen in the news even can can affect us and so um i think that to have these prescriptive this is what a morning routine looks like or these are the things that everybody should do before 8 a.m you know it 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 just it, it sounds ridiculous when you actually acknowledge that each of us has a totally different life that we're dealing with and so i think that um again it's great to take inspiration. And I certainly have, and I think that's maybe what these people are offering is inspiration and tools, but it's important to remember that we can Mm. find our own way with those tools and experiment for ourselves, I think is the most empowering part. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that is probably one of the reasons I liked your book so much was because there was nothing prescriptive. It wasn't like, hey, do this, this, and this, and this. It was more like a philosophy of productivity book, um, which I think was just really thoughtful. And, and you know, that, I think more than anything for me, it was like, oh, you know, this needs to be adapted to the circumstances of your life. But there's something that you yeah, say in this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say thank you. Shreen. That means <laughs> yeah. a lot. Well, you know, there's something you say uh, in the book about ambition. You say alongside the pervading societal message that we are what we accomplish, we're also told we'll never be enough. No matter how hard we work to prove our somebodyness, there's always somebody who is more of a somebody than we are. We can never be quite good enough, smart enough, successful enough, beautiful enough, fulfilled enough because there's no endpoint to such ambition. And this is a question that I have been wrestling with and I've been asking a lot of people and I still haven't had an answer that I'm thinking is like, okay, that's it. Um, how in the world do you find a balance between fulfillment and ambition? It's interesting because I'm not sure if they're on the same scale in a way, like if we're trying to find a balance, maybe they're on, on different, um, truly different uh, scales. But I think that in some ways, maybe it is about first looking at, well, what is fulfillment? Um, and maybe that is the thing that's very individual. And the fact that fulfillment might not be this constant that we arrive to. And then if we acknowledge that fulfillment in and of itself might ebb and flow and change as we do across our lives, then it, we can see that ambition, it's ambition is similar in that we don't arrive anywhere for very long. And so I think that's the the tricky part of pursuing it, either maybe fulfillment or ambition. Maybe they're both kind of the wrong goal because they're transient things. And instead it's about sort of detaching about from landing anywhere and really just 
I, I talk about this idea of drive instead of ambition because drive, it's active and there's a sense of movement and there's not necessarily an outcome to that drive. It's actually the driving in and of itself. It's the process, essentially. Um, Whereas we can get so caught up on the end goal of ambition or landing in fulfillment that, you know, there's that whole, um, once we arrive, it disappears. And so if we have drive, um, that's the thing that we are in charge of. That That's the thing that someone can't take away from us, irrespective of whether, you know, you have a best-selling book or something's a success or your ambitions are fulfilled or you are fulfilled there's this drive that that that's the constant. And I guess mm-hmm. maybe checking in with yourself and asking which direction is my drive in? Is it in the right direction right now for where I want to go towards fulfillment? Yeah. I don't know. It's a great question. I love that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's something I've thought about. That's why I don't think I've found an answer yet because I don't think anybody has like, a, mm. you know, to your point earlier, like a, a simple recipe for this. If, if it was that simple, I would have figured it out. Uh, Mm. One thing that I really loved um, was the concept that you talk about called microambition and uh, and then also the idea of being a time realist. And, you know, I think that we all try to squeeze in far more than we could possibly do in any given day. And, you know, that's one of the things I find with productivity apps in general, like task management tools is like the biggest sort of issue with a lot of these tools is the fact that they don't have any constraints by design. You can just keep adding and adding and adding. And I was like, OK, this is why I use pen and paper. Um, but talk to me about, you know, the idea of time realism and microambition. Mm, okay. Well, yeah, they, they, it's nice that you've bundled because they're quite, there's sort of, there's a similarity, like a connection, I suppose, um, in that everything's really about taking it down to the smallest moment, isn't it? Um, but microambition, it's, it's actually a concept that I've borrowed from the comedian Tim Minchin. And so he had a um, mm-hmm. 2013 commencement address, um, where he admits that he's never had a big dream, like a big ambition. Um, instead he, he is an advocate for short term goals. And so the idea of being micro ambitious is that you just put your head down and work with whatever is in front of you. And, um, the idea is that the next worthy pursuit, it's actually in the periphery. It's not on this big goal. Because again, if we go back to this idea of drive, the direction might change. And so if you are open, if you're just working on this this next right thing that's in front of you, it leaves you um, open to opportunities. It it leaves you open to those possibilities. Um, and it just means that you can actually notice what might be at the corner of your eye. And interviewing people who have very successful coveted careers, there wasn't necessarily a plan. There wasn't this step-by-step process. It was very much about being aware of whatever thing was out the corner of their eye and seizing different opportunities and working in the moment and not getting too caught up with where that will go. Because I think sometimes when we have this big goal, we can just focus on the gap between that big goal and where we are and get lost in that gap. Um, and so I think it's about sort of trying to to put that aside and just work on what's in front of you. So that's the idea of being micro-ambitious. And, um, this idea of being a time realist, um, is I think what can get us, um, in trouble when it comes to sort of panicking about, you know, the time that we might waste in a day, which then kind of leads to feelings of productivity guilt, or it might be the very thing that propels productivity obsession is because we don't want a moment, um, of time wasted because that would be so detrimental. (laughs) But the idea is that, um, being a time realist is that we, we really can crowd the day with a, a long to-do list or, um, uh, we can think that we can achieve more than is actually possible in one day. So I think that links nicely to being micro ambitious because instead of crowding our to-do list or crowding our schedule or thinking that we can be in two places or one or, or you know, 10, <laughs> it's really about, well, how can we make that smaller and more realistic? Um, and actually create buffer room, um, and, and know that things actually take a lot longer than we think that they will. I think, um, we can set ourselves up for a lot of stress just because of our expectations for how smoothly something will go. Uh, we don't account for just distractions and disruptions. 
Um, so rather than being a time optimist, it's about being a time realist and being realistic with how long things take. Um, and being okay with that, that space around things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, uh, comparison. I think that the comparison and the idea of social media kind of go nicely together. And you talk about two types of comparison. Uh, you talk about enriching comparison and, uh, you know, the other form of comparison, which is empty comparison. Talk to me about the distinction between the two and how you make sure that you're not falling into the trap of empty comparison. Because I think that when you scroll through Instagram, you scroll through Facebook, um, to your point, you know, you are basically getting a holographic version of somebody's life. And I've often said it's a bit like looking through a window when you walk by somebody's house and assuming that that reveals everything about what their life is like. Mm, yeah, when it's just a window and maybe you're even like looking at a shadow so you don't even know what you're really seeing, the smoke and mirrors of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's a good way to to summarize em- empty comparison in many ways is that I, th- I think that with with empty comparison is that we, we might feel this sense of, of not good enough or we might feel this sense of falling behind um, based on these, you know, inaccurate glimpses that we're getting of someone's life. Um, but not only that, but where not only are what we're comparing to, could that be inaccurate, but it might actually be that we're comparing ourselves to something that we don't even actually want. <laughs> if we, um, you know, there's been so many lessons of, um, you know, we might think that we should do something in a certain way or pursue a certain career because someone else did. Um, and because that led to success and we don't actually interrogate whether that's something we want for ourselves whether we want to be doing those eight things before 8 a.m. Is that, is that something we really want for our life? Um, so I'd say that that's empty comparison is that there's, there's no sense of, of real kind of, um, congruence with what you want in your life. Whereas enriching comparison, that's when you might encounter something. Maybe someone, um, has just, you know, had, um, had a, a glimmer of success in some way. And you feel that sort of the pang of comparison and it might feel like that envy and that jealousy or that, that feeling of falling behind or not good enough. But it also in some way sort of brings you alive. It's alerting you to something that you actually want. Um, and it's almost, you know, providing a, a, a direction for you. And so that's enriching comparison where you can, um, sort of take these as, as a little map. You know, and there's that great Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, where she advises to create a jealousy map and write down sort of the names of people, um, of, uh, that you might be jealous of or comparing yourself to and, and what it is that, that they're doing that is, is sort of maybe what you're coveting. And I think when I've done that exercise myself, what it's revealed to me is that I know it's enriching comparison when it's not necessarily exactly what they're doing that I want. But it's a value or an attribute. It's, oh, it's their openness. Oh, it's their courage that I'm envying. Um, it's, oh, they're, they're sort of not self-conscious. It's, it's something that's, that's more intangible. And then that's what I can kind of work with because we might not be able to do exactly what they've done in the way that they've done it. That's impossible, but we can borrow some of that inspiration and, and maybe some of that, those values. Um, and and enrich our own lives in in doing so through comparison. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think that, that dovetails nicely into the idea of expectations because I think in a lot of ways comparison often tends to generate expectations. And you say that we cannot rid our futures of uncertainty, but we can loosen our grip on our desire for certainty. We can change our great expectations of our future self and relieve some of the pressure. And you say expecting so much of ourselves can curtail our ability to do something either by exacerbating our feelings of being already behind or by setting us up to fail. And I, I think that, you know, it, that really is kind of fitting considering that you and I were kind of both talking about our experiences with publishing books when, uh, you know, before we hit record here and how sometimes, you know, they didn't necessarily live up to our expectations. Like I was just telling you, I thought, you know, audience of one had been a flop um, commercially because it didn't hit a bestseller list or, or something like that. And I, I think that there's, you know, like a inherent understanding everybody has that having expectations is pretty much a recipe for 
disappointment. And I, I've noticed in my life, anytime I have zero expectations of a situation, it usually ends up turning out far better than I ever thought it would. Anytime I have an expectation, it's almost always disappointing. And I, I love the way A.R. Rahman, the uh, Indian composer, but he said, when you expect nothing, everything comes to you. And I realized that's actually so mm. hard to do. And the ultimate irony of it is to actually not have expectations when it works and you start getting all the things you wanted. That's when I realized it was actually even harder. Like the first step is easy, but when having no expectations starts to get you everything you wanted, then you start to get into this trap <laughs> of, oh, okay, well, now it's just going to last forever. Hmm. Interesting. And and so so that that's the part that's scary is that it's going to last forever or that it will go away, that someone will take away whatever it is you've always wanted. That it'll, I think it'll go because I think the, the thing is that you, well, the thing is like you detach from something, the outcome of something, and suddenly, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the outcomes exceed whatever expectations you let go of. And then suddenly the expectations come back now that you've got what you wanted. Um, which I think is actually the harder mm. thing. But I'm curious, like when you think about this idea of expectations, like how do you let go of expectations uh, while at the same time maintaining your drive? Hmm. Well, I definitely don't think I've mastered letting them go entirely. So I think a little trick there is just to make them really, really small. And so that I guess that's a nice tie back to micro ambition. Um, I always think of my friend who was having a bit of a panic about a trip that she was taking abroad and, you know, this the expectation that she has to have the trip of a lifetime and make all these memories and make the most of every moment. Um, and in that panic, she was given the advice to just go to Europe and have a cup of coffee and then everything else can be a bonus from there. Um, so if the goal is, if the yeah. expectation is to have a coffee, it's um, it means that everything else can kind of be can be this beautiful bonus and there can be that flexibility and you can be open to different opportunities and things. And so I think that maybe that's the, the, the way to sidestep, um, expectations. I think we'll, we'll always kind of want things for ourselves. And so I guess it's about being aware of that and, and making them, I think there's this interesting tension between we still want to, we still want to challenge ourselves. Um, and so there is, you know, something to be said for having ambition and expectation, um, something to rise to. Um, sometimes when someone believes in us and has an expectation of us, um, it can be the very thing that helps us believe in ourselves and, and strive harder. It's just when that striving becomes relentless and, um, that hamster wheel that can be tricky. So I think it's, it's always an interesting balance. Um, between accepting whatever it is, um, but also pursuing more in where we can. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, in a, a sort of ironic twist, talk to me about how you actually plan your day because I, you and I both have probably read every productivity book under the sun. You wrote one. I've apparently filled medium with so much productivity porn that that's all I get now when I actually log in. Um, so, you know, Talk to me about, you know, how you apply this in your life day to day. Like, what does your daily planning look like? Have you just abandoned all productivity advice? I don't get the sense that that's the case. <laughs> no, I think that um, it's interesting because I am I'm still someone who is, you know, a devotee to my bullet journal, for example. And I think I will always have <laughs> an affinity for a to-do list. Um, and so all of this was... There's, there can be a real joy from that. There's, there's like this sort of juicy pleasure to trying the next sort of hack. It's just about sort of, again, not attaching my sense of self-worth to whether that changes my life or not, because chances are it's it's not going to change my life. I'm still the same person. <laughs> um, and so I think that um, I, I have the list, but I hold it lightly. And so, you know, um, instead of sort of having this intense, elaborate schedule for myself, um, that, you know, if, if it doesn't go to plan, the whole day topples over. It's about sort of, okay, well, moving on to the next thing. Uh, something I try to keep top of mind is this quote from Arnold Bennett, um, who wrote a book in 1908 called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And he talks about how the beauty of time is it, it cannot be wasted in advance. And so we might waste one hour, we might waste the morning, we might have wasted the day, 
but we can turn over a new leaf if we choose. And so I suppose I'm just each hour trying to turn over the new leaf um, and look to the next small thing that needs to be done. But recently it's kind of this this beautiful, I don't know, full circle thing where because I've really sort of um, interrogated these things and, and tried to put away other people's recipes for the day and try to focus on what I've got to work with, um, I found that there's this this thing happening that sort of looks like a semblance of a routine. You know, I've always wanted to be a morning person and I've always been someone who sets this overly ambitious alarm um, and then only to snooze through it because it's waking me up at a time where I'm, I'm not getting enough sleep. And so instead of trying to become this morning person through, you know, discipline and um, punishment, I've just allowed myself to get the sleep that I need. And I find that I wake up at the, you know, an earlier hour um, and then being able to kind of, it, it's really helped me see that these things that we strive for sometimes just fall into place because of the years. You know, I think that we sort of slowly settle mm-hmm. into our own rhythm and get to know ourselves more and know what we need um, and know what feels good. And I think exercise has been a really great example for me. It was something that I dreaded through my 20s, but now in my 30s, it's something that gives me such mental clarity that there's such delight in it that here I am with an exercise habit, but it's not through willpower. It's actually through delight. Um, so I think that there's just been these interesting reframes. And so, um, yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're speaking to me at a time where I've had um, a very spacious, purposely trying to um, to trim any unnecessary commitments or obligations that I'm, I'm doing out of, you know, a feeling of should or a feeling of not falling behind or a feeling of, of this pressure to be busy. Um, and what that's meant is that I've just had more space um, and trying to keep the thing that I value is freedom. And so trying to keep that present. And so I guess that doesn't really answer what the day looks like, but it's an interesting like segue into like what a life can look like. And I think that for me, it's, it's constantly questioning, well, how can I have more time? And the, I guess the trade-off there is, you know, um, perhaps, you know, not, not pursuing, I guess, material things as much. Mm -hmm. Um, and just, yeah. I'm curious to hear about your day on the swell. Well, I see that so, the, the question never leaves. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell I'll tell you about my day, but the sort of big takeaway I think I've, I've had from our conversation is somewhat of a paradox of productivity. Is the irony is the less we, you know, obsessively try to be productive, the more productive we become, and it, it you know kind of reminds me of something uh, Chris Bailey said uh, in our, our recent interview with him about how to be calm and productive and uh, this idea of an accomplishment mindset and how, you know, this accomplishment mindset actually pulls you out of the present moment. And as a result, actually mm. makes you less likely to accomplish things. Uh, it, and that's kind of the big sort of takeaway, I guess, maybe the, the universe is trying to tell me to slow the fuck down. You know, <laughs> like that, that's, <laughs> that's maybe this, the, the message I'm getting considering, you know, we had Chris Bailey as, you know, the episode yesterday, and now I'm talking to you. Uh, I'm kind of wondering, I was like, maybe the universe is trying to tell me something. Uh, but as far as my day, well, yeah. my day goes, you know, it, mm-hmm. it has pretty much been standard for quite some time. Um, one thing that did change is my sister had a baby. So now, um, you know, because my sister's at my parents' house, at least for another two weeks, he's become kind of a, an integral part of my morning routine. And, you know, we're all kind of dreading when he's going to leave because my mom and I are like, you know what? I think he'll adapt just fine. We're the ones who are going to have a hard time with him not being here. Um, so like I wake up in the morning and, you know, I, I usually, you know, used to be 6am at the desk reading, writing, but since he came along, uh, cause he doesn't wake up till 730 and it's not like you can wake the kid up. Like you just have to, you know, go with his schedule. He's a baby. And so I wait, I wait for him to wake up so I can hang out with him in the morning and, uh, you know, listen to some music with him and teach him about nineties hip hop, which in my opinion is the best, you know, hip hop music ever. Uh, but it's. Honestly, I was thinking about this. If there's anything that I have appreciated about him, it's that he's taught me, you know, kind of what it means to be present um, and to, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of let go of this need to just be constantly on the ball. Because, I mean, even my brother-in-law is the same thing because, you know, he has a son now. It's kind of like, oh, okay. And he's trying to balance, you know, building a startup and spending time with a kid. So, you know, that's definitely changed things. But I mean, my day has always been pretty standard. Like I have, I try to have no meetings before 10 a.m. 
Um, I try not to have screens in the morning. I haven't been as good about that lately because um, my exercise bike is in my parents' home theater. So I just turn on something to watch because otherwise it would be mind numbing to ride an exercise bike. Um, but typically I, I usually don't spend, uh, much time on screens, at least for the first couple of hours. And then I, I usually am doing a lot of reading first thing in the morning. That's the bulk of my early morning is spent reading. Um, because that's when I find my mind is, is typically the sharpest and, and it tends to by about two or 3 PM decline. Um, and you know, I, I talking to you is making me realize like I should just kind of be okay with the fact that I'm going to be distracted and kind of all over the place and, you know, chase shiny objects on the internet, sometimes which have led to some of my best ideas. Hmm, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the Im- Im- immeasurable kind of epiphanies, you know, I think that's so important. And just what you're describing in terms of, I think that was really common with people I interviewed is that it's not a routine in the way that we might think of it. Um, it's these little anchors in the day that we've over time cultivated and know that, you know, if we do those things, it's a good day, but it might not happen every day because that's just life. Um, and I think that the important part is just, again, picking up the pieces and, you know, finding a way to be present in the day or enjoy the day or learn from the day. I think that's more important than squeezing the most out of every single day, because what does that even really mean? Like, is it squeezing the most if you got a a lot of work done or is it squeezing the most if you connected with a newborn, you know? Um, so I, like, I guess it's sort of, it really, um, it's a, it's a big question, I think, about how, what we value. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been beautiful and thought-provoking and insightful. Um, and I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I was really reflecting on this because I knew that you'd asked the question. Um, and I actually, I, I think I landed on honesty. And in particular, I think that there's, there's some beautiful conversations around vulnerability. And I think that those conversations are really important and enriching. But I think sometimes we're actually mislabeling, we're calling things vulnerable when actually they're just honest. And I think that there's, there's a real place for sort of knowing what honesty looks like and, and recognizing it because vulnerability, it's, it's actually focusing so much on the reaction because by definition, it means that you're exposed um, to the possibility of being attacked or harmed. And so this kind of, it's, it's what people are describing or responding to what you're doing is that, that thing about, oh, you're so vulnerable or, oh, I would never be able to do that. Or it's kind of this warning that they're giving you like, oh, you might get hurt, like be careful. But that's people's reactions. Whereas the person doing something, they might actually feel in a creative way, really strong, really safe. They might feel like they've honed their craft. They might feel in control of this, you know, supposedly vulnerable act. But actually what they're, so they're not being vulnerable. They're actually just being honest about something. They're being honest about, you know, a, a question that they've had or they're being honest about their interpretation of something. And so I think that that can be a real beauty is this honesty that we see. And and they say that the best kind of humor is actually just honesty. And I think that that can be true for creativity. So when someone's honest about who they are or what they desire, uh, or they're honest about their flaws, or when they say, I don't know, or I've changed my mind, or I've made a mistake, those things are what we really connect to. And I think that there's this integrity and sincerity and openness to honesty that's unmistakable Hmm. beautiful well um i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story your wisdom and your insights with our listeners where can people find out more about you uh your work the book and everything else you're up to well all of that is on madelinedor.com and i've got a newsletter where i uh continue to write about various things um so they can also sign up and say hello there um it's also just been such a treat to be here on the unmistakable creative so thank you for all the work that you do and um for you know giving the book a chance even though it was contrarian (laughs) i've just really appreciated the conversation thank you Uh, and for everybody listening i highly recommend that you check out this book i think you'll absolutely love it and we will wrap the show with that Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.